It's a joy to be with you this morning for this uh, last Sunday in this year of 2019. And it's a privilege for me to be able to preach from this passage. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The title of my message is Encouragement to Unity and Humility. It's basically, we're going to look at how the incarnation is practical. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So we're going to read God's word together here, or I'm going to read this, and you'll uh, look with me here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we give thanks to God for his precious word that he has given to us And let's go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, our prayer for you is that you would help us at this time. Help us to think your thoughts after you. Our confession is continually that we are your dependent children and that we cannot think identical to you. That is our confession, but we can think your thoughts after you as you enable us by your Holy Spirit to understand your word. So help us to understand your word, help us to put it into practice so that it would be that people could see Jesus Christ through us. And we want you to be glorified now in this time of preaching as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We just celebrated another Christmas where we focused on the incarnation. And that word incarnation is a big word, not found in the Bible, but is a word that the Lord's church has used to describe the coming of the Messiah. And it's during this Christmas time that we were praising God for sending his only begotten son for us and for our salvation. We were filled with joy and we're continuing to be filled with joy as we think about what God has done, who he is and what he has done, the works that he has done for us and our salvation. This morning, we're going to look 
and try to look in a fresh way at the incarnation as it's presented to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And so as we look at this passage, the one main thing that I would like us to come away with is how God wants us to live because of the incarnation. Our roadmap for this sermon is twofold. The first thing we're going to look at is the Christian's call to unity and humility. That's verses one through four. Then secondly, we'll look at Christ's humility and exaltation, verses five through 11. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in the first four verses, but we will cover, Lord willing, these 11 verses. Paul's letter to the Philippians was written about 62 AD when he was in his first Roman imprisonment. Philippians has a major emphasis on gospel partnership. So Paul looked at these believers as his partners. He gives praise and he's confident that God has begun a good work in them and that he will bring it to completion. That's in chapter one, verse six. And then he prays for them. And he tells them how he prays for them, that they would have a growing love for one another. Paul assures the church at Philippi that his imprisonment was part of God's plan and that whether he lives or dies, his grand aim in life is to live for Christ and to die would be gain. That's verse 21 of chapter one. And then we come to chapter, uh, in chapter one, verse 27, looking to the end where it says this in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The overarching appeal of the Apostle Paul that he's giving to the believer is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's verse 27. And he's continuing that with what we're going to be reading here in chapter two and studying. But I want you to take note here what this means to live worthy. It's standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's gospel partnership. The believers are to be united in working with other believers who are fellow soldiers, compatriots. Did you also notice as we look through those verses that there's two gifts here that God gives us? The gift of faith in verse 29, God has granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but he's given us a second gift, and this is startling to us, that Suffering is a gift. Suffering for the sake of Christ, for his sake, that is looked at as something that God has granted or given to us. 
And I believe this really beautifully connects with what Benjamin preached last week, how the love of God and the suffering that God in his sovereignty brings into our lives is part of his plan. They're compatible, not incompatible. So let's look now at this first point, though, that we're going to be looking at God's call for us. This is the Christian's call to unity and humility in verses 1 through 4. The basis or the motivation for Paul's appeal to unity and humility is a very solid basis. It is the best of foundations and motivations. He doesn't ask them to, you know, like grit your teeth and, and, and get psyched up. Let's, 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 you know, get our emotions up and get psyched up and go out there and, and be unified and be humble. It, it's not a matter of willpower or mind over matter. It's a matter of dwelling upon how God has loved and cared for us and then letting that motivate us to action. In other words, in verse 1, we are to look and dwell upon, uh, almost like let's get marinated at how God has worked on our behalf, and then let that move us to care for other believers in the body of Christ. So, and as we look at verse 1, does this make sense? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, there is, from the love of the Father possibly, or the love of the, the Son, any participation in the Spirit, and there is, He is the source of our fellowship, any affection, any sympathy, we've been the recipients of this, affection, deep care, deep love, deep compassion, and there has been, there is, it's God who has encouraged us. He does this by bringing us into a faith union with Jesus Christ. And how encouraging to think that we are bound with Christ. His life is our life. Has God's love given you comfort? Yes. Do you experience fellowship, a sharing? Yes. It's because of the Holy Spirit. On and on. God is impressing this upon us. And from this basis, we should be motivated because God has lavished this on us. We should then be wanting to do what God wants us to do. And that is to be unified with other believers and to be humble the way that, in, in the way that we do that. On the negative side of this, consider the Grinch who stole Christmas. For the very first time, I watched the animated version of this story that was recently done. I believe it was in 2018. And it was brought up and even visualized that the Grinch was in an orphanage and did not <clears throat> receive the love from parents. He was looking at others who were getting love, but he himself did not receive that. And that this was... I thought of it, I saw it as an excuse or reason for, a reason for having no heart for people and for not liking Christmas. You and I don't have that. We have a God who is lavished on us. 
And I see this Trinitarian uh, echo here in verse 1. As you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, which says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's that echo. You have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And even though the Father is not mentioned in verse 1, <clears throat> you see that it very much goes with the rest of Scripture, and it's very possibly here an echo. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, uh, 1 3 says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Our triune God is the source of all these things mentioned in verse 1. And so, therefore, <clears throat> when Paul emphasizes that he's now pleading with them, appealing to them, he's asking them to have gospel unity in verse 2. And this is a deep unity. So let's note what verse 2 says. Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Just like parents have a joy when they see and hear their children's obedience. And that just brings such a joy to your heart. So Paul as a shepherd will have a completed joy when the believers are unified and not divided and fighting. We can see in the rest of the letter that there were some divisions. He mentions two ladies by name in chapter 4. And so he's very concerned that there would be unity. It's a major theme in many of his letters. It's something that God longs for his church to have. So the question is, how can we as believers have the same mind? My mind, your mind, I mean, we have a lot of differences. We could sit down and talk about those. So how can we have one mind? And then the answer, I think, in part is found in the verse where it says, verse 2, where we're to have the same love, a mutual love for one another. As Jesus said, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So as the church mutually cares for people and mutually cares for its own especially, the world is watching and they will see that we are disciples, we're followers of Jesus Christ. And we should have a concern, yes, for our own growth and development, but also for the development and growth of other believers. So how can we have this one mind? This might seem like outlandish to us. This doesn't seem possible. Is God calling for a uniformity here? And I'm going to answer no to that. But I, I want us to major where God majors with unity. <clears throat> it is found in the majors of the faith which are B-I-G, big teachings of the Bible. God, the Bible itself. So God is our triune God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Son and, and the Spirit, they're equally God. And <clears throat> we see that the Bible is God's inspired and fallible word. Mankind is another category. Mankind that God has made, we are made in the image of God. 
but we have fallen in Adam, and we are therefore in need of redemption. And so God sends the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God the Son who takes on our nature and then does a work on our behalf. The church is unified on that. The church, the true church is unified on the Holy Spirit that he applies the redemption that the Son has accomplished. And that this salvation, it's not muddy what scripture teaches on this. It's clear it is by grace through faith in Jesus alone and the works that we do are the evidence of our salvation, not the means, not the way in which we become Christians and justified. And then we believe as a church that the Lord is coming back. He's gonna come back visibly and bodily. And that we are, that history and redemptive history is coming to an end, a consummation where there are new heavens and a new earth. And that we will have resurrection bodies in that new heaven and new earth. The church has been given this deposit of truth. These are the majors, some of them, many of them, and we are to guard it and not let it be tampered with or stolen. We are to protect by teaching this truth, by defending this truth of the gospel as found in the Old and New Testaments. Imagine if you were given a million dollars as an inheritance. I recently have a relative who just in this last week told us it wasn't this amount, but it was a large amount. Imagine if you were given that. <clears throat> you would protect it. You would do all you could to keep it from being stolen. You would also try to grow it and pass it on to your children when you pass away. Look at the gospel. It's, it's worth there's no dollar amount what it's worth. It is the most precious possession that we have. Now, I want us to see a little picture here of unity that we find in, in Acts. And I believe it was when Daryl preached on Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So we're going to look at this in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. A wonderful picture of unity. It says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. There's a lot in this. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. <clears throat> the early believers here devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That refers to God's inspired word. God has revealed himself to us through the apostles and the prophets. 
And it's here where we have unity in these big things that were just mentioned. This is the apostles' teaching, these big categories. Now, is there diversity in the body of Christ? Yes. We have different gifts, for one. We even have different opinions over areas that are not major. They, they are what we would call minor or second-level beliefs. They may be also called areas of freedom, or sometimes they're called gray areas, where Scripture is often open to different interpretations, or areas where Scripture is silent. <clears throat> but Christians, nevertheless, have a conviction or opinion about them. So let me give you an example here. In the first century, the Jewish Christian was... Ne- the Jewish Christian would believe that it was wrong, some would believe it's wrong to eat pork. And that was the question, to eat it or not. On this area, God has clearly spoken in the New Testament that foods are now clean. Jesus spoke to that effect in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. And then Peter was told very clearly in a vision that all foods are clean. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. But some believers, their consciences were not adjusted to this new truth. And so whenever they would eat a pork sandwich or a ham sandwich, they wouldn't do it. Well, first of all, they wouldn't do it. That would be a violation of their conscience. And some Christians had the liberty to do it. This could be an area where there could be division. And what What God doesn't try to do is bring us to uniformity. But I'm going to give you two quick examples. I actually had a boss one time who really believed it was wrong to this day to eat anything from the pig. I don't know if you ever had anyone like that 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 had that particular... You may have that conviction. I know someone... I work with someone from time to time that they have that conviction. I still do. So I personally don't have that conviction. Uh, Another person that uh, just, these are just two examples. Uh, This man, his name was Elmer. Uh, He just had this conviction that you never should eat a meal in the church building. And he based that on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, where Paul says, what, do you not know? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And so Elmer's conscience was bound thinking, I will not eat a meal in a church building. And so he, he was a great brother in the Lord, but when it came to the meal time, he was not going to eat with us because he felt that was a violation of Scripture. So what's interesting here, I'm going to bring this back to Philippians 2.2, we're to have the same love, though, for one another. And so the emphasis in Scripture is not that we be uniform, but that we would love our brother and sister in that situation And we do that by not ridiculing them. And we would also do that by not encouraging them to go against their conscience. We want their conscience to be in line with truth, but we don't want them to violate their conscience. And to have them violate their conscience would not be loving them. I love Gary Friesen's book. It's uh, very helpful. It's been revised and uh, it's called Decision Making and the Will of God. And I'm sorry to burden you with another book, but uh, <clears throat> those who know me, I, I like to read a lot. And uh, this is a book that I would encourage you to read. And we're going to put a quote up that's very helpful here. 
And this, this is helping us in the minor areas, areas of freedom. He says, in those areas where the Bible gives no command or principle, the believer is free and responsible to make choices. Any decision made within the moral will of God is acceptable to God. Part of God's design for the church is that it should manifest unity in diversity. It was God's intent that people with divergent personalities, nationalities, gifts, abilities, tastes, and backgrounds should become unified in Christ without eliminating personal distinctiveness. Accordingly, God does not view differences of opinion in the areas of freedom as a bad thing. Variance of thought is not a flaw in an otherwise beautiful plan. It rather represents one more situation in which the supernatural character of the church as a living organism may be manifested before the world. What God desires, I like this next paragraph. What God desires then is not uniformity of opinion, but unity of relationship. And so instead of trying to eliminate differing opinions, the Holy Spirit has given specific instructions to guide our response to them. This teaching is found mainly in Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Now I have some modern day examples, only gonna list three. I think we could easily list 50 to 100 is my opinion, where Christians will differ over minor things. And so I want you to hear me real clearly. Our unity is not found in uniformity in these minor areas, it's found in the big areas. So the one area is, where to send your child to school. Should it be public school? Would it be a Christian school? Or would it be homeschooling? Christians are gonna differ on that issue. Secondly, movies and television viewing. What to watch, whether some Christians would believe it's wrong to even have a television. Maybe you feel convicted that way, but when you try to make everybody the same over these minor issues, you're gonna cause division, and God does not want uniformity in the areas where he has not given clear instructions. So there's principles to guide us on every one of these things, and we're gonna have some differences over some of these particular matters. Another area that can be very hotly debated is the age of the earth. <clears throat> we're all agreed God has created everything directly as Christians. Uh, we would be against theistic evolution. That is, that is not something that will ever be taught, Lord willing, from this church. But when it comes to the age of the earth, you're going to have a lot of differences of opinion over the age of the earth. So how can we have one mind? And I believe verses 3 and 4 helps us here. Philippians tells us, Paul tells the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So as we move into 2020 here, I want you to dwell upon these verses. And let's think about applying these verses. 
for having unity in the church. When we do that, when we apply these verses, we will have unity. And when we truly understand these verses, we say, Lord, I need your help. I need your grace to help me to be properly motivated so that I would do nothing from conceit, which is an excessive opinion of ourselves. We, by nature, struggle with thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We are to think humbly and soberly of ourselves, which is not cutting ourselves down. When you cut yourself down, that is a, I believe, a veiled version of pride. We are to focus on the Lord, we're to focus on others and ourselves as last. It is not that we don't think or care about ourselves, but that we don't overly obsess on ourselves. Notice that in verse four, it says, not only to his own interest. So we are to look to our own interest, but they're to be last. So I like the old cliche, joy. J stands for Jesus, O stands for others, Y stands for you. That's the order it should be. But we are glory by nature. We are glory thieves. Verse 3 is the negative. Verse 4 is the positive. I believe it is proper and godly to look and care for yourself. But we are called by God to look to others as well. Remember the first and second great commands are to what? Love God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus said, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. The verse is not telling us to think someone is better than you. That is the verse in Philippians. is not telling us when it says, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That verse is not telling us to think others are better than you in an area where you are clearly less knowledgeable or more knowledgeable and skilled. So in other words, some of you are better in math than I am. That's not, that is definitely not my strong suit. <clears throat> the verse is not telling you, think I'm better than you are in math. No, you are by far better me, than me. Most of you probably are in that topic of math or maybe it's in physical ability. Uh, there's many of you here would run faster and longer than I can. You're not to think I'm a better runner than you when you're clearly the better runner. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is here, be focused on others. Consider them more significant. They need your care and your help. It's not an either or. So we are to focus on ourselves but what happens as sinners, we focus on ourselves at the exclusion of others. So it is a both and. So both focus on what your needs are. As you're healthy, you're going to be able to help others. And God wants us as a church to be focused on the needs of others. Now let's look at this second and last point here. And this could be a whole sermon in itself, and I'm going to try to do it in rapid fire here. I'm down near the end here, looking at the most very important example here, Christ's humility and exaltation found in verses five through 11. In verse five, 
The apostle says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, follow Jesus' example in the incarnation. This, by looking to Jesus here, we're going to see what humility is. So humility, when it's exercised, is going to bring about unity in the body of Christ. So consider Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not cease or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These verses tell us one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith, the incarnation. It is Jesus who was in the form of God. This refers to his pre-existence as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. This means that Jesus is God. That's what the form of God means, that he is by nature God. The eternal Son did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's verse 6, the last part of it. This means the eternal Son was willing to let go of something in order to come to earth and take on our human nature to become a man. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't give up the form of God, as I've already said. That's an impossibility. The Son is equal to the Father and the Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity are one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's Westminster Shorter Catechism number six and New City Catechism number three. If you or I won a prize of a million dollars, you probably think I'm stuck on that. I am. <clears throat> if we won a million dollars and that was our prize, would we be willing to let it go? Now, I'm going to just speak for myself. No. Maybe you would. The eternal son, whatever the prize is, I'm going to, I, think I, I, I think God has given us enough revelation that we can get to it, but there's still mystery here. But the eternal son was willing to let go of a great prize for us in our salvation, but it wasn't his deity. Whatever it is, it is referring to this, I believe, his humbling himself his condescension, his coming to our level, his lowering himself to our level, not spatially, but in reality. For God is uncreated, and we are in a different realm as his dependents, his creatures. The creator will take on our properties, our creaturely properties, and he does that for us and for our salvation. This is his humility and his love for us. Verse 7 explains what is meant for the eternal son to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The words, but emptied himself, refers to this condescension. And this emptying himself is, this is another way of saying he let go of something. 
but he didn't cease to be God with all his attributes. God is good. God is great. God is all his attributes. He is love. He is light. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is simple. He is independent. On and on. To give those up is impossible, but he emptied himself by addition, not subtraction. While still being in the form of God, the Son emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant. God, who is infinite, took on finite, limiting qualities. He took on a human nature with a body and a soul and was born a baby and he grew to be an adult man. The creator who is eternal condescended, that is he came down to add to himself our human nature so that he could obey the law perfectly for us. We couldn't do it. So he is obeying that law and did that for us perfectly. And then he died as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins and appeased the wrath of God and gives us the gift of righteousness. Just as the sun, S-U-N, is majestic, bright, and beautiful on a clear, cloudless day, not today, so Jesus is the eternal son, God, who is equal in power and glory. But when he clothed himself with human flesh, his glory was veiled as is the sun veiled on a cloudy day. The sun is just as glorious and bright on a cloudy day, but we cannot see it because of the clouds. And so in the same way, the flesh Jesus took on has veiled the full splendor of God's glory. As the Christmas song says, one of my favorites, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And then another verse, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Like a king in royal robes, Jesus puts on the robes of a slave, the robes of humility. I believe 2 Corinthians 8, 9 helps us to understand this. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we by his poverty might become rich. That has nothing to do with money. Has everything to do with status, I believe. Jesus laid aside his heavenly status, not his deity. He is no longer <clears throat> in his incarnation. He didn't come with trumpet fanfare as a king. He didn't come and say, bow down and worship me now. No, he came as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This, beloved, is Jesus' humiliation. His state of humiliation is his incarnation. But his exaltation comes when he arises from the dead and when he then ascends and now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. As we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to this earth to judge the living and the dead. So this resurrection, this ascension, this session of Christ, this is his exaltation. And God the Father has exalted him. He humbled himself. He's an example for us to then be humble with our brothers and sisters, to be humble with all people. I love Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is by the grace of God that you and I as believers have bowed our knee in this life. May God give us the grace to, to be humble because we still struggle with the pride, the flesh that still remains in us. And we have to remember that God exalts the humble and he abases the proud. I give you good news today. Jesus is God and our God came to save us. Emmanuel means God with us. He has shown us humility by adding our human nature to himself and dying a shameful death, shame, very shameful, most shameful death on the cross. And he is now our resurrected king who is ruling and reigning and he will come again to judge the world. We are called, beloved, to be humble. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to humble yourself today by admitting you are a sinner, a rebel. You need to trust in Jesus, who is the only Savior who can take away all your sins. To God be the praise, to God be the glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, our, our prayer is simple, and it's from the heart. We confess that we are by nature rebels. We are sinners. We want to be the ones who get the praise and the glory. And we want to do things our own way. That's, that's how we are by nature. And that you have changed our minds. You have changed our hearts. We give you all the praise and all the credit. We, we want you to be glorified. We, we pray for ourselves, Lord, that we ask you to change us for 2020. If you give us another day, may we live humbly before you. And may people come to know who you are through us. May you bless, Lord, this church. May you use this church. May we be examples of the incarnation in the way that we live among other people. May they see you through us is our prayer. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.